0: Okay, so yesterday we started going through some of the main sources that the Alter Rebbe uses to kind of construct the ideas in the Tanya, um, and what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of revisit the ones we went through, and we're going to continue where we left off, which was in um, source number five, the Talmud Brachas page sixty-one B. So the the, the tanya starts off centered around um, what the, it's teaching in the Tractate of Nida, that, which is a very long teaching describing the state of a person in utero before they're born. It's where you get the famous idea that you're in the whole Torah, you forget the Torah, there's all sorts of interesting things. Um, and in that teaching there's the idea that just prior to birth an angel administers to the, every single Jew an oath to be righteous, not to be wicked. And then instruction that even if the whole world uh, says that you're righteous, you should consider yourself wicked. And there's an obvious question here that, that seems redundant. And so from here we can conclude that righteousness is not the same thing as not being wicked. And that also this notion of considering yourself wicked, even when all kind of external measures indicate <clears throat> that you're righteous, can't just simply be humility because again, we have a teaching in the Tractate of Avos which contradicts that. It says you shouldn't consider yourself wicked. So there has to be some kind of more complex notion of viewing ourselves in, 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 in not such black and white terms That in some sense, there's like something fundamentally negative about us as people. And on the other hand, we're also not supposed to frame ourselves in that way. Okay. And that definitely moves things kind of in a, an internal issue, which again goes back to underlying the idea the Tanya, the Tanya is trying to deal and address with the how we feel about Hashem and keeping His mitzvahs, rather than just the act of doing it itself. Um, and then we had the, the Source 5, which we, we stopped in the middle of, which sets out um, kind of our basic definitional criteria of what it means to be righteous and what it means to be wicked. A righteous person is ruled by their good inclination. right? And this is, this is, like most of these in the Oral Torah, linked to a verse in the written Torah, that King David, David Melch, says that, bi, My heart is dead, or empty, or corpse-like, whatever you want to translate it, within me. Meaning that the, 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 the energy of the evil inclination is absent from the heart. So we see that, that, that righteousness is an absence of the evil inclination. In contrast, right, we said, what is a wicked person? A wicked person is someone who the evil inclination rules, and that's understood as a, as, as, an, indication, as a, an indication of a lack of fear of God. In other words, when a person is deficient in fear of God, that is what, that is what allows or that is what makes it the case that, that they're ruled by their evil inclination. Okay. Um, and then you have this this benini, this middling, this in between person who is neither a righteous person. Why would they not be righteous? They still have, they
1: still have, little...
0: they still have an evil inclination. But why are they not wicked? They, they sufficiently fear Hashem. And there's clearly an inner conflict there, and that person is in some state of distress. Right, as, because the verse describes that person as needing as being needy and needing salvation, and Hashem comes to save that person. Okay, and that's where we left off. So. We, we've already seen that a basic understanding is that we, we're given kind of at least, we're given two commands, two instructions, and we're, we're, we, we, we'd accept those upon ourselves right before our birth. One is to free ourselves of our evil inclination, that would be, right, be righteous, and secondarily to ensure that we're not lacking in fear of heaven, such that our evil inclination doesn't rule us, right? So there's kind of two missions here. Um, then we have the following thing Rabbah said So we are back in source 5 At the third to last line So on page 2 of the packet People like me are middling an abenini I'm an example of a abenini Of the in-between person Okay That seems fair enough, yes? Because one would not want to assume That they are the worst person And one would assume that they're the best person, right? So um, I intentionally did not put every single source that the Al Rebbe uses in this packet because that I thought that would be too much. So some things I'm going to fill in orally. Let's get a little bit about a little knowledge of Rabbah. So first off, who was Rabbah on, on a societal level? In um, the time period, um, the major center of Jewish religious life was in what was called Babylonia, now modern-day Iraq and Iran. And Rabbah was the greatest sage and official leader of the Jewish people in a religious capacity. So he was the Ezra HaSofer of his day. He was the Moshe Rabbeinu of his day. Okay? That's just on a sociological level, you understand, like that's the person we're talking about. All the sages are great, but, but clearly he's has a very central position. Moreover, The Talmud is a very fascinating story. Um, The story involves a dispute in the heavenly yeshiva. In in heaven there's basically a yeshiva where they study Torah on a much more profound level than we do. And there was a dispute between the inhabitants of the yeshiva and the Holy One, Blessed Be He. There was a halachic dispute and they could not come to a resolution. So they decided that they should consult an expert. Who was the expert they decided to consult? Rabbah. So they sent an invitation that he should join them in the heavenly yeshiva so he could you know, voice his opinion on the matter. Now, in case you don't understand the euphemism, joining, someone, joining the heavenly yeshiva means dying. So they sent the messenger to bring him, that messenger is known as the angel of death, not because he did anything wrong, but because they needed him upstairs. So already telling you the caliber of person we're dealing with, right? And the, evil, and the angel of death had a problem because the angel of death cannot take a person out of this world, cannot approach a person um, when they are studying Torah.
1: Mm.
0: Now, there's a caveat. The studying Torah has to be studying Torah as God truly intends Torah to be studied. Um, in other words, the Torah study has to have the proper quality of devotion to Hashem. It's not like if I sit there all day, um, reading, uh, reading Talmud, like I'm going to live forever. That's not going to happen. Okay. So the angel of death just like waits for him to take a pause. What's the problem, Rabbi? No. Never stopped studying Torah, and with the sufficient quality that he kept the 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 uh, um. angel of death at bay. Now, does this sound like a person who's like you know, in the middle? Mm-hmm. No. Okay, the, the end of the story is that the, the angel of death is a loyal servant of God, and when he's given a mission, he finds a way. And there's a long, more complicated backstory to this, but he creates a situation where Rabba chooses to die um, rather than the possibility of him being brutally tortured by the Babylonian government. And once Rabbah chooses to, to prefer death, then the angel of death can take him away. Um, and as he dies, the last word out of his mouth is pure, which was the halachic dispute about the purity or impurity of a certain kind of person. So he dies siding with God in that dispute, by the way. Ironically, the actual halacha, as is codified by the codifiers in that particular case, is impure. So, go figure. We don't rule like God on that one, but we'll we'll save that for questions and answers. But that's who Raba is, right? Okay, so now, keeping that in mind, Abaye, Abaye was... Rabbah's student and nephew, um, the, 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 the standard explanation why he's called Abaye is because his, his name was really Nachman, he's named after his grandfather who was Rabbah's father and Rabba didn't want to call, and Rabbah raised him because he was an orphan and he didn't want to call his orphan nephew by his own father's name, he didn't feel it was respectful so he called him Abaye, Abaye would be the... B- 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 like saying like uh, Yiddish Tatila or, or 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 little father or daddy or something like that as a cute nickname and so he was raised with the nickname Abaye and then when he became a great sage it just stuck so um, keep that in mind sometimes nicknames stick anyway Abai, who is his nephew and his student um, he says if the master claims that he is merely a middling and beni he does not leave any room for any creature to live right if you are the example of someone who is not free of the evil inclination, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have set the standard impossibly high, right? This phrase, you don't leave any creature to live, is a standard Talmudic phrase meaning you have set an impossibly high standard. Now, what does that tell us about um, the level of fear of God one needs to have in order to not be wicked? It's an exceptionally high level of fear of God, right? Because Rabbah plausibly thinks he fits into that category. Even though he's incredibly righteous. Now, he, it also tells us another important thing, that the distinction between not having an evil inclination and not being devoid of fear of God is a very subtle distinction. Because if it was an obvious distinction, would Rabbah have made this mistake in his self-assessment? Okay, so again, we learned two very important things about this. Number one... Whatever the standard is for fear of God that removes one from the category of the wicked, it is a very lofty standard because because Rabbah thinks that he's an example of a person who fits it. Right? Number two, from the fact that Abaya refutes that that he's actually not in that standard, he's on a higher level, indicates that the distinction between being free of your evil inclination, i.e. a righteous person, and having a sufficient fear of God, i.e. just not a wicked person, while it's categorically different, in reality, it's a very subtle distinction because if it was an obvious distinction, would Rab have mistaken his own self-assessment? So, what we're seeing from this is that whatever these distinctions are, they are very deep. Okay? We're talking about another layer of ourself that can't simply be reduced to behavior or obvious things that are easy to pick out in a certain self-assessment. Does it make sense? Okay? Now again. That doesn't give us any explanation of what it really means, right? That's where the altar is going to then make a whole book about. But the, but the necessity to understand things on that level, you see from the text. Okay. If we're good with that, we'll move on to source six, which is one of one of my favorites. Okay. Source six. So this is a part of a, a midrash in the, in, in the Tractate of Brachas which is an exposition of the dialogue between Hashem and God at Mount Sinai. There's a, there's a dialogue between them? Hashem and God? Yeah, Hashem and Moshe, sorry. Hashem and Moshe at Mount Sinai. They have a, uh, you know, in Kabbalah that might actually make sense, but we'll leave that alone. Yeah. Um, actually, no, there's a puzzle. Right? Even in the Chumash, it says that Hashem talks to himself. Um, but setting that aside. So, Moshe and Hashem have a dialogue, and it's rather cryptic. Um, and so there's this whole exposition on it. And so, um, going right into that, it says, Lastly, Moshe requested that the ways in which God conducts the world be revealed to him. Okay? Moshe wanted to know how God runs the world. And he granted it to him. Meshav and showed him how the world works. As it stated, show me your ways and I will know you. Okay? Now, what is the thing about the way the world works that Moshe wanted to know? Now, if you looked in the text, don't answer, but if you haven't looked in the text yet, ask yourself, if you were having a dialogue with God, and you wanted to know something about how the world works, what about the world would you really want to know? What about the world do you not understand how it works that you would really want to know how it works? That's an interesting thought experiment, right? You, you don't get to become omniscient. You, you have a specific question about the way God runs the world, and... You don't know the answer? You want God to tell you? What would it be? Anyone want to volunteer what they would think? I read
1: the paper.
0: You read the paper. Okay. They already colors your thinking when you read the paper. Okay. Let's see what Moshe did. Moshe says... Master of the universe, why is it that the righteous prosper, the righteous suffer, the wicked prosper, and the wicked suffer? The basic question about God's justice. Now, I think that's very interesting. Moshe, the highest prophet on Mount Sinai, having already received the Torah, what, right? is he comfortable with the idea that good people suffer and wicked people prosper? No. So what does that tell us about the rest of us? Is it okay to be bothered by that question?
1: Yes.
0: Yes. By the way, there's another midrash that has a similar thing that Avraham, that already having discovered God and, and um, traveling through the Middle East, it encounters the suffering in the world and is bothered by it. And it causes him to, to ask famously Could there be a, 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 a city or a palace depending in the world that has no owner? How could there be a world that's clearly created by God and yet God seems to abandon people to suffering? And then God reveals himself, and there's a whole dialogue there as well. Um, but, but so I just think it's important to understand that this question, it is okay for it to bother you. Um, in fact, one, should argue, one would argue that if it doesn't bother you, that probably shows that you're not taking either human suffering seriously or God seriously. One of the two. Okay, but God does answer the question. And I, I, you'll notice that I skipped some. There's actually one answer proposes to what God said and the Talmud rejects it that that couldn't be what God answered and proposes this answer which is the accepted answer is what God, what God said. Rather, it must be that God said to Moshe as follows. The righteous person who prospers is a completely righteous person. In other words, if your righteousness is complete, is absolute, then what do you deserve in this world to prosper? Now, um, I want to just say something about the translation. You notice how there's bold words and there's not bolded words in the translation. That's because the Talmud is a, a, the Talmud is a very kind of a very terse, and so many translations of the Talmud will add words in. But because you're adding so many words, it doesn't help to use the normal bracket things. So they do bold The art school does this. This is from the Koran from a Steinzold's translation, but. Oftentimes when you're doing that, you're adding in ideas that make, to make it make sense based on commentary. So here at the notice at the bottom it says a marshal. Marshal is a famous commentator on the Talmud. And so this is interpreting it based on what the marshal says. So all it actually says is the righteous person who prospers is a completely righteous person. It doesn't explain the logic. What it goes on to hear is, is, is actually from a commentator. And I want us to differentiate between what the Talmud actually says versus the classic explanation. The explanation is that because they're entirely good, and their, their reward is entirely good both in the wor- this world and the world to come. In other words, if you are entirely righteous, do you deserve any punishment? No. So in this world, you should prosper and in the next world, you should prosper. And then you keep going with this logic. The righteous person who suffers is one who's not completely righteous person. Okay. Well, if you're not completely righteous, do you deserve some degree of punishment? But where should you get your punishment? Where it's more painful or less painful? Less, less. less because you are overall a righteous person, right? Where is it more painful to be punished in this world or the next world? This, world? this world. So that's how the Marshal explains it. That because the person is not completely righteous, therefore they, their punishment is given to them in this world, but not in the world to come. Okay. Um, the righteous person is not one who is completely righteous because he has a transgression. punished in the world so that he can, will will receive a complete reward reward in the world to come. The wicked person who prospers. It's not completely wicked. So again, the same principle, right? That if they're not completely wicked, they deserve some reward. But where should they get the reward? Where the reward is greater or smaller? Greater. They're, they're, they're a wicked person, just not completely wicked. Smaller. Because smaller, they're overall a wicked person. The reward should be minimized. And therefore, they're rewarded in which world? This world. And then you go on to this, the completely wicked person deserves nothing, and so they suffer in this world and in the world to come. Is the logic clear? You don't have to like it. But the logic is clear. Yeah. What do we mean by suffer and what do we mean by prosper? Straightforward, we mean exactly what you think it means. Like an easy life? Do you know what you want? Well, you have to accommodate for the notion that not everything a person desires, they really want. And as a person is more righteous, they're more mature and they know that. So I would not say that righteous people are always wealthier. Wealth is not always a blessing, right? So you have to have that level of sophistication, but yes, beyond that, right? So, would my life be objectively better if I had a lot more money? No, like mysteries and secrets aside, if I had a certain amount of money, and I could say about what that money is, my life would be objectively better. I, obviously, God was better. Just like just a person in my situation, you know. But if if you went too much far beyond that, it would probably mess up my life actually. So
1: we're talking about like Princess
0: and how. Right. Right. But you would have to have what is appropriate for, for, for the person. Right. Now, deep down, God knows really what's good for everybody involved. Well, okay. Um, but yeah, it means that kind of stuff. right? So you can't always tell who is suffering just because of what they have and don't have. But if you talk to them, you can tell if they're suffering. Yes?
1: Um, is it that a righteous person isn't presented with situations that are like objectively bad, or that they just, when they, like, con- when they, how the situations happen they don't view it
0: as suffering. it would depend if it's a genuinely bad thing or not a genuinely bad thing again the same thing. so like the the death of a child is a genuinely bad thing that's was quite clear about that um, you know being fired from your job is not necessarily a bad thing. that might just be like this job like, is not good for you anymore and God wants you out of it to give you a better job right so you would have to like and that's where's that maturity thing right that not there's, there's the reality of things and there's how you interpret them But there are things that are objectively bad And these are things that you make, uh, you know You make bracha on bad things that's different than bracha on good things This is not meant to be mystical It's meant to be just very simple, like, you know, justice type of stuff okay, Now, does it sound like we're using the term righteous and wicked here In the same way we used it in the previous section of the Talmud? Not really but now I'm going to ask you, is that because of what the Talmud says or because of how it was interpreted? Because remember, all the Talmud says is, why are there righteous who suffer and righteous who prosper? The righteous that prosper are completely righteous, the righteous that suffer are not completely righteous. Does it really tell you what it means by suffering and prospering? Right? Now, once you put it in terms of reward and punishment, we're starting to talk about Transgression, right? And then it, it doesn't like well. Once you're transgressing, you lack fear of God, right? So it doesn't sound the same. But that's again not what the Talmud itself says. That's just how the Marsha explains it, right? So one thing that the Alter Rebbe does is he does not read this piece of Talmud um, like the Marsha does. What he he reads this piece of Talmud now, just to be clear, like the Marsha and Alter Rebbe in like the historical realm, are, I wouldn't say. They're not contemporaries, but they're in the same era. Mashiach, I think, lived like a hundred something, hundred fifty years before the altar, but Maybe I'm just guessing, something like that. But but he said, but his basic point is that really the term tzaddik here in this text, and the term tzaddik in the previous Talmud text, are actually being used the same way. Okay, in other words, that this term tzaddik here is not just dealing about how many transgressions you did. It's like, if you do no transgressions, you're a complete tzaddik. If you do, you know, 10% transgressions, then you're an incomplete tzaddik. If you, do no, if you transgress everything, you're completely wicked. If you, if you, you know, transgress 90% of the time, then you're incompletely wicked. It, it, which is kind of what it sounds like from the Marshal's explanation. But that's, the Alteb is going to read this as the same. In fact, in the, in the Tanya, he groups it together and he says, we find in the Talmud five categories of people. Now, you'll notice that one piece had three and one piece had four. But if you take the Tzaddik, divide into two. You take the Rasha, divide into two. And given that we had that in-between person, you end up with five. Now, there's strong basis for this based on Zohar that we're going to read next. The Zohar has an interpretation of this same passage. And from the Zohar's interpretation, it is very clear we are not talking about the, how many transgressions a person does. We're talking again about something much more internal. Okay, so this is my translation that I did yesterday during breakfast break, um, and you will will forgive me if there's any typos or it's awkward, yes? Otherwise, my feelings will be hurt, and I will go home crying. Okay, probably not true. So the Zohar is a collection of teachings um, Mm -hmm. that are mystically oriented, Kabbalistically oriented, but not always so mystical. Sometimes they're very practical, sometimes they're not. and it's written mostly in Aramaic, unlike other midrashim, which are mostly Hebrew with some Aramaic. Um, and it was compiled by Rabbi Shimon bar It was written down by Rabbi Shimon bar student Rabbi Abba under the direction of Rabbi Shimon bar as we discussed last Bomer time. The masters of the Mishnah have established that the good inclination rules the righteous, evil inclination rules the wicked. Okay, so that already is like our first Talmudic source, right? He's just drawing reference to that. Middling people are ruled by both. One who is from the tree of life, now everyone remembers the story in the beginning of Bratius and Genesis, right, where you have the Garden of Eden and there's all these trees, but there's two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which tree are you not supposed to eat from? Knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. And once you eat from that tree, God kicks you out of the garden doesn't give you access to the tree of life, because if you have the tree of life, you live forever. Okay, this is a major theme in Kabbalah, the notion of the tree of life versus the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to what that means, but this is a major theme. But one who is from the tree of life, meaning their soul is somehow in connection with that. They're, they're, who they are is somehow in touch with the tree of life. Has no judgment at all. Has no wingful inclination. This is, notice the wording here, a completely righteous person. This is a righteous person who has good, which is a more literal translation of a righteous person who prospers. The actual Hebrew is tzaddik, a righteous person, vitov and it is good for him. He has good. He possesses good. And there is no good other than Torah. And then there's some like biblical verses that are used to support this idea. So let's just stop here. We're going off the idea that there's three kinds of people right? One ruled only by the good inclination One only ruled by the evil inclination And one that's dealing with both So that's like our first hominic source And then it says if you're You come from the tree of life Which is clearly some mystical concept Which we're not going to go into Then you have no judgment at all Judgment in Kabbalah references the side of Gevura The side of harshness They have no inclination at all And as such that person is a completely righteous person so what makes the person completely righteous is that they are devoid of what? What makes the person completely righteous?
1: They're
0: devoid of the evil inclination. They're devoid of the evil inclination. And because they're devoid of the inclination, what do they possess?
1: Good.
0: Good. What is the good that they possess? Good. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, that does not sound like the Marsha's explanation, does it? No. But you see how this Zohar is taking those two teachings in the Talmud and is putting them together? Okay, A righteous person who has evil is from the side of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why is he called righteous if he has evil? That is the evil inclination. That's a fair question, right? We already have established that what makes a righteous person righteous is that only which inclination rules? The good. But the person who is not completely righteous possesses a evil inclination. There's an inconsistency here. What is the Zohar answer? Rather, it is because the good rules over that... Yes, rules over, sorry. Comma. It's because the, the good rules over, meaning ruling over the evil, that he is called a righteous person who has evil. That this evil is under his authority like a slave to a master. So what do we see here? You have two people that the good inclination rules. One, because they have no evil inclination. They're in touch with the tree of life. They possess the good of the Torah, whatever that means. And there's another person who has the evil inclination, but despite the fact they have an evil inclination, their good inclination has dominated the evil inclination, has such authority over the inclination, it's like a slave and a master. And so that's a person who's not completely righteous because he has the evil inclination, and he is in possession of, he has ownership over his evil. So here we're not saying like he suffers, we're saying that he has evil, but the evil is under his control. How much control? Total control, like an example, of being a master and a slave. A wicked person who has good. Why is he called good? why is he called wicked? Because he has made the evil inclination his head and the good under his authority, like a slave to a master. So, what do we see here? What's the person who is wicked, but possesses good? Why are they wicked?
1: Because he still has good inclination.
0: Well, first off, why is he wicked? Well, the evil inclination rules but he still possesses good. The good is still present, it's just been subjugated like a slave to a master, right? And even though the wicked surround the righteous, I included this just because I thought it was, um, it's interesting to see the difference between Kabbalah and Hasidus, are things that just Hasidus doesn't quote. Hasidus, I can't say never, but would probably never quote something like this. And even though the wicked surround the righteous, what does that mean the wicked surround the righteous? How many of us in life, our good inclination is the sole thing we possess or our good inclination has completely dominated our evil inclination like a master to a slave? Very few of us, right? How many of us is it the other way around that our evil inclination has dominated the, the good inclination? So the
1: majority of us are in this category.
0: And how does life work out if you're in the minority and the majority has an entirely different agenda and way of life for you? Is that, is that good for you? Is that pleasant for you? Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. No, right? So the Jews are in exile amongst the Gentiles, right, and subject to all sorts of, you know, soft and harsh forms of persecution. What about the righteous amongst the rest of us, amongst the wicked? Same, Same idea. idea. Now, is that a nice, that's not a nice place to be, is it? So even though. Right, The wicked are, are, are not creating a positive situation for the righteous. The wicked surround the righteous. And the completely righteous can punish them. Well, that's interesting. What could the completely righteous person do? He could solve his problem of being in exile amongst the wicked by punishing the wicked. So I'm going to put that in explicit terms. Okay? Let's use an example of a completely righteous person. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Baal Shem Moshe Rabbeinu, the Rebbe, okay? These people. And what is the Zohar saying? These people are living amongst Jews who even observe Torah mitzvahs, right? And for them, living amongst these Jews is like being a Jew in exile. And what could these people do? What could Moshe do? What could Rishim do? do? What could the Rebbe do? Punish us? Punish us. And that would solve his problem, right? Nevertheless, Since there is good at the feet of the wicked, he should not punish them. For perhaps he will do tshuva and overcome his evil inclination and will be like dust under his feet. Why don't they punish us? Maybe we'll do tshuva, tshuva, right? So the Zohar is kind of implying, right, that the tzaddikim who walk amongst us have this tremendous amount of forbearance that they don't, like, you know, smite us out of existence. Because? Because we can do tshuva. Now, is that the kind of thing you would encounter in Chesedahs? I, I, I just have this strong sense it's the kind of thing that Chassidus doesn't like talking about. Now, it's not true, it's part of Torah, but Chassidus has its emphasis. Right? Chassidus would probably talk about the fact we could do tshuva. Mm-hmm. Chassidus talk about you know, that kind of stuff, but the, you know, it, it's really painful for the tzaddik to be around you. And really the tzaddik could wipe you out if he wanted to, but he doesn't because you might... Like, just like, but Kabbalah is full of this type of talk. Kabbalah has a kind of elitist feel to it. Which makes sense because it's very much about you know, achieving high mystical states. Okay, but what do we see from this? You see how this Zohar clearly is synthesizing those two Talmudic passages? So it's very clear that there's some kind of inner complexity. You might be ruled by your good inclination simply because your evil inclination doesn't exist. You might be ruled by your good inclination because you've subdued the evil inclination like a slave. You might... Be a wicked person because your good inclination has been subdued like a slave, but it still exists such that tshuva is a legitimate possibility. Of course, that does mean that who is the wicked, completely wicked person is a person who the good is completely gone and by implication, the possibility for tshuva is not there. Now, that becomes problematic because it's very clear. That, there, that Shuvah is always a possibility But this is not the only place where the Zohar makes statements That Shuvah is not a possibility That's a general question How do you reconcile many statements in the Zohar about Jew, Statements explicit and implicit About Shuva being off the table With our basic rule in the Talmud That Shuvah is always on the table We're not going to go into that but. Are there any examples
1: though of people who Like completely have Like were completely wicked and Yes shuvah?
0: Well there is the. Exa- I'll give you three examples of people that are mentioned by name. Jews. Mm-hmm. One is Yeravam ben Nevat. Yeravam ben Nevat was a very righteous man who was appointed to be king after Shlomo died, um, as punishment for Shlomo's um, excesses, that the kingdom was split.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Rechavam was, was Shlomo's son. He got part of the kingdom, and the prophet Echias Shiloni, who was by the way the teacher of Balshemtov, appointed. Um, on God's authority, Yeruvah ben ben had a small problem. The temple is not in his kingdom, which means mm-hmm. all of his subjects are going three times a year to make a pilgrimage in the rival kingdom. Yeah. So he reinstituted, as a political matter, idolatry, um, golden calf worship, actually,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that they wouldn't go. And um, that just, you know, things went downhill from there. And the Talmud says at a certain point, the God comes to Yeravan ben and says, do chuba. And if you do true, if you return to me, you and I and the son of Yishai, meaning King David, which is not the most respectful way to call him, right? Mm-hmm. Son of Yishai you're downplaying his significance. We'll go walking together in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. And Yerubim ben Nevat's answer was, who will walk in front? To which God replied. And by the way, God said, you, I, King David, right? There was an order. Yeah. He said, son of Yishai. And Yerubim ben Nevat says, not interested. And he is... Hay in the Talmud is one of the worst sinners. Um, then you also have Elisha Benavua, known as Acher, mm-hmm. who had a mystical experience and um, <laughs> chose to reject God and become a heretic and yeah. undermine um, Jewish observance and help the Romans persecute the Jews in a way that would be halachically more drastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he maintained close relationship with his disciple Rabbi Meir, and one time Rebbe and respect of Rabbi Meir's religious observance. They, go, they were traveling on Shabbos, the mayor was walking, and Elisha Benavua Acher was riding a horse, which is forbidden rabbinically. Um, and they reached the boundary where you're allowed to travel on Shabbos. You're only can okay. to travel so far out of the city. And out of respect for Rabbi Meir, Elisha Benavua said, Turn back, mayor. Now, in Hebrew, the word for turn back and dukhu is the same word. Chazar, oh, shuv, it's the same thing. Um, and so Rabbi Meir said, You should also turn back. And Elisha ben I heard a heavenly voice proclaim, "All can return to God, except Acher." So, what do you want from me? There's an interesting thing. I don't know what the source is. is that it doesn't say Alicia ben It says Acher. As long as you see yourself that way, you can't do tshuva. But if you would were... um, and last is uh, a guy named Jesus of Nazareth.
1: Oh, is not nice. Yeah, he. Uh,
0: the Talmud has some very nasty things to say about him. The uncensored version, and we'll leave it at that.
1: not Talmud the
0: uncensored version there's a reference in the tractate of Sanhedrin there's a reference in the tractate of Sota, I think I think it's in Sotah um so in, in Sanhedrin it says that it was taught that on the day before Pesach or Pesach Yeshua Hanotsu was strung up was hung up um it, because Yeshua means Jesus of Nazareth um and an announcement went out four days before, that Yeshua, uh, um, Jesus of Nazareth, is going to be stoned and hanged. The, the halach is that anyone who's stoned to death, their corpse is then hung up on a pole for a few minutes before sunset, um, because he has convinced other Jews to engage in idol worship and has practiced sorcery. And then there's a whole discussion about, is that the appropriate legal prin- principle to use, and whatever. Okay, so. Um, then there's another place, and I don't remember which tractate it's in right now, where it discusses after his death that um, Unculus before he converted, used necromancy to get in touch with Jesus and ask him his opinion about converting to Judaism, and he says, um, he says, uh, um, who's significant in that world, meaning in the world of truth, who is really significant, and he says, the Jews, should I um, convert, and, he, and Jesus quotes the verse, um, seek out their good and not their harm all of your days, um, and then he asks him, what's your punishment? And he says, I'm being punished with boiling feces.
1: <laughs> and
0: then the Talmud says, and this is an illustration of the statement that he who mocks the sages is punished with boiling feces. <laughs> um, and in Kabbalah it says that this continues until the highest revelation, the Messianic era. His soul will continue to be. Um, yeah. So there's some really, pretty, pretty serious. Like,
1: so you feel like you really have to like, go out of your way. Yes. In Tanya,
0: when the altar wants to explain, um, the, 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 the completely wicked person, um, he describes someone who has gotten to the point where they no longer regret sinning. They don't even feel bad about it anymore. That's how he takes it. Um, but you can see that if you, that becomes true about you, not just in a particular sin, but in your Judaism in general, like as long as you were in that state, Shiva's was like off the table, because why? Yeah. You know And like that would just send you to the bottomless pits of hell. So yeah, most of us are not in that category. Okay, so that's the Zora. So, so like there's what to explain. Okay, now we have two more sources that we have to go through. And these two sources are, are dealing with a, with a different issue. So up till now our sources have basically dealt with the notion of distinguishing between being righteous and being wicked and what that really means, right? They're not the same thing, being righteous and not being wicked. They have something to do with something deep internally, right? Being righteous and being wicked themselves can be subdivided, right? Um, there's this in-between state altogether, right? And, and we, can, we have certain basic terms. Now, one thing I, I do want to point out, I didn't put it here, is that the al makes the point that the Talmud is quite comfortable labeling anybody who transgresses any kind of halacha as a wicked person, um, which is pretty consistent with the idea that Rabbah considered himself to be not a wicked person, you know. Um, and, And that is in fact, by the way, the halachic standard that it is sufficient to transgress once to be given the halacha category of wicked person. Yeah, by the way, you can lose the halacha category of wicked person by doing tshuva, so for instance, if you um, steal, actually I'll use a easier example. If you gamble, um, you gambling is forbidden. There's a discussion why, but it's forbidden, and it makes you invalid as a witness. Um, at what point do you become valid as a witness again? And you do chuva. How do we know you did chuva? No more
1: gambling.
0: How do you know no more gambling? No. But how do we know that you're really serious but about not gambling? Not so the action with the gambling is that you take all of your gambling equipment and you destroy it. <laughs> Um, in a consumer society I don't know if that would work anymore but back in the day destroying things was like really destroying them because it was hard to go back you know placements of things were hard um, if you if you um, if you were you know stole or dishonest in business right so then we need to know that you had the opportunity to get away with theft and you didn't right so for, for, for the halachic purposes for the court we need evidence of your true. but for God God knows what's in your heart but yeah there, there's a you know. so you know, how do we know that you are lacking the sufficient fear of God to render that the evil inclination has taken control and, and enslaved the good inclination? The fact that transgression is a viable option for you, right? And that, again, follows from the sources we've seen, plus a few other sources where the term rush is used for even minor transgressions. Right? Um, one other thing, parenthetical thing I'll bring up, which the altar brings up, is that there are clear cases in the Talmud where the term tzaddik and Russia, wicked and righteous is being used clear in the context of reward and punishment. And the alter just says, that's clearly a different use of the terminology and that's like a normal thing in language. But clearly the Talmud, and make very clear from the czar, is there is this kind of more fundamental being such a person, being a righteous person, being a wicked person, what's going on inside. Okay. The next two sources deal with an entirely different issue, which is how much control over this do you have? Now, I I wanna frame this. Um, This cannot be a discussion simply about whether or not you have free will. Why can this not be a discussion whether or not you have free will? Because in Judaism, the fact that you have free will is obvious, right? The whole notion that you are, however you conceptualize what free will is, you have whatever it is such that you're responsible for your mitzvahs and your transgressions, right? Okay, so we're gonna see two sources that seem to to conflict about who determines whether you are a tzaddik or a rasha. Now remember, we've already understood these terms, righteous and wicked, as not referring to your behavior, right? But referring to something that's going on deep inside of you, right? So even though a superficial reading of these sources might seem it's about basic question of free will or not free will, since we've already understood the terminology to refer to kind of what's going on inside the person, right? So make a concrete example. Um, if you break something out of anger, you are clearly had the choice to do that or not. Or, you, or, 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 alternatively, you are a child or have some serious mental issue that needs to be addressed. Right? There's a lot of category for that, but assuming that's not the case and you break something out of anger, you are responsible because that was your choice. Okay, so you can choose to or not to. Some of us are angrier people than others, yes? Is that something that we just get to decide? And now this becomes a deeper question because we can even subdivide being anger, an angry person to multiple layers, right? Some of us have a strong propensity to being angry, but we're actually not angry people because maybe we have really figured out a way to um, buffer ourselves from things that trigger that tendency. Some of us maybe aren't don't have that option available and really do experience a lot of inner anger. Like once you start talking about the anger as an inner part of you, it's not so obvious to what extent it's up to you and to what extent it's up to God, right? right? And I could say the same thing about other things. How much you know, some of us are very compelled by the intellectualism of Torah study, and some of us are not. Again, you could choose to study Torah or not, but like how much is it how natural, how easy is it for you, right? We can talk about intelligence. We can talk about extroverts and introverts. We can talk about a lot of different characteristics where it's not not plainly obvious just because we have free will. To what degree, if any, that's in your control? So this question, being ruled by your evil inclination or good inclination, which is not whether or not you sin or not, right? It's that something deeper going on inside, which is clear from the previous things. Is that up to you or is not up to you? So let's look at two sources. One is from the, the Talmud track tape of Abbasra. And this is a, a, a midrash, an exposition on the book of Job, where it's fleshing out the book of Job. Um, everyone's heard of the book of Job? Um, the custom instituted by the Arizal um, on the night of Shavuos is that one is supposed to say um, the, all, all 24 books of the Torah, um, but you don't have to say the whole book. You say the beginning and end of each book. It's called the Tikkun Leel Shavuos. The, the, there were later editions made by later Kabbalists. Sephardim only do that part. And so you read the beginning and end, plus certain select important passages like creation, giving of the Torah, the part about Sefer Somer, whatever. Um, so I have a friend who says, you know, there's two jobs. There's the Job from the Tikkun Leil Shavuos, and his life is wonderful because the first three verses of Job are like, there was this man named Job and everything was wonderful. And the last three verses of Job, and Job had many children, life was wonderful for him. Yeah. But everyone knows the book of Job. Everything in between is really bad. So there's the, there's the book of Job and there's the Job from Tikal El Um So, but this is, and Job is, 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 is Eov is, it's one of the, the more interesting books. It's the only overtly like new th- book that deals with like real theology, which is like why, you know, understanding God and why, why God does what he does. And it's also very difficult Hebrew. It's, it's very difficult Hebrew, um, partially because of the vocabulary, partially because it's written in a very poetic and symbolic way. There's a lot of speeches that are use a lot of symbolic language. And so you have a lot of different commentaries. And the Talmudic sages, they expound on what it means. So in that exposition, um, they, 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 they're, 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 they're spelling out clearly what Job meant by one of the things that he says. And he says, and he's complaining to God, Basically, that um, the, the, the basic complaint is that God is unjust in punishing us. Why? So Job said before God, Master of the universe, you created the ox with split hooves, and you created a donkey with closed hooves. And again, you see the commentary. What happens if you have split hooves? Not you or me. You're kosher. But if you don't have split hooves, you're not kosher. Can the ox decide to be kosher?
1: No.
0: So should it be praised for being kosher? Should it be rewarded for being kosher? Did it do anything? Does it deserve anything for being kosher? No. And then the same thing for the donkey, right? So you created the Garden of Eden. You created Gehenna, right? You created a reality of good and a reality of evil. We're going to not spend too much time on what that means. And then he says, you created righteous people. You created wicked people. Who can restrain you? Who can stop you? So what does Job seem to be saying? Whether or not you are a tzaddik or a a righteous person or a wicked person.
1: Out of your control.
0: That's something God. So it's like, you know, don't blame don't me because I'm not a righteous person. Don't blame me because I'm a wicked person because that's something God determined. Now, immediately that sounds like heretical. Well, like we don't have free will. And I regret I didn't put the next little part. But the next little part is the response that is given to Job. And the response that's given to Job is that you have the power to overcome. In other words, Job's mistake is not in his premise but his conclusion. His premise is you created people to be righteous the same way you created oxen to be kosher. You created people to be wicked the same way you created donkeys to be not kosher. And therefore, they don't deserve a word of punishment. And And the Talmud, going on again, expanding the next part of Job, that the response to Job is not God didn't create righteous and wicked, but rather God gave the ability to overcome. But again, since we're not talking about righteous and wicked being behavior, what can we understand from this is that whether or not you are a righteous or a wicked person, whether or not that internal dynamics, how we're going to understand those to be about, you know, the good inclination completely ruling you, whether, you know, it's the completely righteous, or completely righteous person is really not up to you. And whether or not you're a wicked person is really not up to you. Maybe you can overcome that in some way, but there's some element which is not up to you. And that, again, that is not theologically problematic. It's fine, right? Like, You know, there's a lot of things about ourselves, if we'll be honest, are really not up to us. And maybe righteousness and wickedness in this deep internal level really is one of those things, fine. The problem is we have another teaching from the Tractate of Nida. And this is, again, a midrashic interpretation. As Rabbi Rabbi Hanina Bar-Papa interpreted the verse in the following manner, the angel that is appointed over conception is called night. Just by the way, everything that happens in the world is governed by angels. Angels are the tools that God used to govern the world the same way a, a craftsman uses hammers and saws for different things. A hammer, uh, there was once a television show many years ago, I don't remember what it was, but it was like a comedy show about a handyman.
1: I remember
0: No, it wasn't this.
1: Handyman.
0: I don't know what call called, but, but he had this line that he would say, you only need two tools, a hammer to take things apart and duct tape to put them back together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
0: Yes. At one point, he took two cars and smashed off the, the sides of one each car and then duct taped them together to make a hammer. <laughs> it was like this stupid thing. But the thing is, like tools do things, right? And you use one tool for one thing and one tool for the other tool for a different thing, right? Which is why our sages always say you can't send, two, you can't send one angel on two different missions. It's not like some deep mystical principle. I mean, it is that also, but it's very simple, right? If you want to hammer a nail and don't use a saw, it's not going to work. So... One of the things that happens is conception, right? reproduction, and there's an angel through which God governs conception. And what is that angel called? Lila. Lila. Okay. (laughs) And that angel takes the drop and presents it before the holy and blessed be he and says before him, so he's in charge of conception, he's like, okay, I have something's about to be conceived. What will be of this drop? Mighty or weak, clever or stupid, wealthy or poor? So what does that say?
1: God determines.
0: God determines those things. Yeah. You don't get to determine those things. But the Gemara notes, but the angel does not say wicked or righteous. And this is in accordance with the statement, the, the statement of Rabbi Hanina. As Rabbi Hanina said, everything is in the hand of heaven except for fear of heaven. As it stated now, Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you other than to fear him? So since wickedness and righteousness has to do with fear of Hashem, fear of Hashem is something up to you. The one thing that the angel does not determine at your conception about you is righteousness and wickedness. And now we have a major problem because when Job's complaint that we're created righteous or wicked was accepted as a premise, it was just rejected about the conclusion he drew from it. And here we have a statement that Every characteristic of a person other than wickedness and righteousness is determined by God. Now, when we have Talmudic statements like this, do we just decide, well, you know, pick whichever one you like? What do we try to do, if at all possible? Make them fit fit to try and recognize them. There is some sense in which it is up to God and there is some sense in which it is up to us. And that is the last layer of complexity that that Dr. Rebbe kind of introduces before really getting into the ideas of Tanya is that whatever righteousness and wickedness and being the in-between are, it is not something that can be just reduced to God made you that way. And it can't be simply reduced to you decide to work on it. And again, if we were talking about compliance with mitzvahs, this whole discussion would be irrelevant because obviously you can control your behavior. Obviously you're responsible for your actions. But because the tanya is addressing the inner part of us, right, and understanding the real terms righteous and wicked, as is evidenced from these texts, is referring to that a deeper part of us, kind of who we are inside. It is a legitimate question. We have conflicting sources about to what degree that is up to us and what degree that's determined by God. Right? And that's basically it. That's the context. Like now, the Altarebbe, what he basically does is as follows. Right? What he does is like this. He draws on Kabbalistic ideas and Hasidic teachings to make sense of all of this in a way that is methodical, implementable, so you can actually understand the verse that it is close to you to have in your heart the requisite love and fear that God asks of you. But within that structure, within understanding what does it really mean to have the evil inclination rule you? What does it really mean to have the good inclination rule you? What does it mean to be void of the good and incl- evil inclination? How, what it would mean to be completely wicked. Um, but he explains that drawing entirely on the, the, the Kabbalistic ideas and Hasidic teachings. Okay. Good. All right. I'm going to stop right now and ask if there are any questions, and then we're going to move on to the actual overview of the ideas of Tanya. Any and have any questions about any of this? All right. Okay. Um, I am planning on Hashem giving you another sheet with. Like I did the chapter things of the breakdown of, of the flow of ideas, um, but I, I haven't had a free breakfast since yesterday or any other time to do it. So Be'ez HaShem, by Monday when we're going to have Tanya, um, I'll have it for you. So we'll have to do it without the actual sheet. Okay? So again, the first section, the chapters 1 through 17, so you can go back to page 1. So, right, we're going to try and understand, explain the verse. The matter is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the focus is to understand how it's close to you in your heart. Right, we're not ignoring the idea that it's very close. We just want to understand how those emotions are close. And again, close from the biblical context is it's within your power. Right? It's not beyond you. You don't need to send someone else to do it and get it for you. You can do it yourself. Um, I do want to point out that the altar says very clearly that it's not the same thing as it being easy. Right? Within your control and easy are not the same thing. There is unfortunately an a, a improper way Tanya is sometimes taught where people say it's close to you, meaning it's easy. And it, the author was quite explicit. There's actually a line in Tanya where he says it's not easy. Okay, good. So the first half of chapter one basically does what we just did. And I spent a lot of time on it, which is basically providing the context that the author was working in, the structure the author was going to work in. Okay. The real, so to speak, body of Tanya starts halfway through chapter 1, where he says, The explanation of the matter is as follows, and he introduces the first idea. This idea um, is, and I'll probably say this many times, but is arguably the most central idea of the Tanya. Up till now, we've just learned what the Tanya is addressing. Where the, what, what framework the Tanya is working within. We haven't actually learned any ideas that the Tanya says. What's the first idea that the Tanya says? This is an idea that you need to know to start understanding how all this makes sense, how all this works, how all this is feasible. And the first idea is the doctrine of two souls. Every single Jew has two souls. Good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I, I made a, myself a commitment that I would not spend a long time on every point. Because there's no way we're getting through the flow of ideas of 53 chapters. That being said, some ideas I do want to spend more time on because you can't really understand the other ideas without understanding those things clearly. So what we're going to do is some ideas I'm going to spend more time and some things I'm going to rush through maybe suffice with two or three sentences. And some things I'll just skip over because you can't do every idea. Okay. Um, we're going to spend some time on the two souls. Now, we just had a bunch of sources that spoke about evil inclination, good inclination, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of two souls is a different idea than the idea that you have good and evil inclination. The Alter Rebbe attributes it to two works. One work is the Shari Kedusha of Rebbe Chaim Vital. Chaim Vital was the main disciple of the Arizal. And he wrote a work called the Shari Kedusha. Um, although it's sometimes called Shara kadusha Because there are many other works Of the Arizal called Shara, so um, Sha'ar means gate Shari means gates of Whatever um, And also the Eitz Chaim Which is again a work com- Compiled by Rabbi Chaim Vital Which are basically transcripts Of lessons that the Arizal gave In Kabbalah So basically this is being attributed To the Arizal through Rabbi Chaim Vital The idea that every, that every Jew has two souls And, and like every idea It's Back to a biblical verse. There's a biblical verse that can be used to show where this idea is referenced or alluded to. What is the idea of two souls? So, in order to understand the idea of two souls, um, I'm going to expand a little bit on the idea as it's in the Shari Kedusha, which is actually very interesting. If anybody, um, I don't believe it's translated to English, but if anybody knows Hebrew and can read Hebrew relatively. Comfortably, if you ever want to really appreciate Tanya, read Shari Kedusha, because then you see what the, how the Alter Rebbe takes the Kabbalah and uses it to get at the Chasidus. Because like you see, like the Shari Kedusha is very much Tanya-like in terms of like it's a guide of how to do stuff. The goal of the Shari Kedusha is to how to understand yourself to practice Judaism properly, so that you can eventually achieve Ruach Hakodesh and ultimately forms of prophecy. That's what the book is. In fact, the final chapter, chapter four. Or section four wasn't published because it was considered to be like too, too dangerous to like publish how to do that stuff. Um, it's recently been published for manuscripts, but it's got all sorts of weird stuff that you can do. Did
1: you try
0: it? Um, I think I mentioned a class once, a practice. See, he says in chapter four that the section four that if you've done all of your Judaism perfectly correct, you should achieve ruach hakodesh or some minor forms of prophecy. But if you haven't, there are some things you can do to kind of like circumvent it. Again work it out, and um, I I think I said this once about you put yourself in a dark room, can I tell you this? One of the things is, so it's like you basically, it's just like, you're not getting over that hump to like have genuine Ruach Hakodesh, genuine divine insight, so one thing you can do is put yourself in a dark room, wrap yourself in a talis, um, um, and then remove your consciousness from your physical existence so that you're not aware of your physical body or any of your surroundings, because if you're aware of anything physical, it will destroy the process. Um, and then you also have to make sure you've done complete tshuva and for all of your sins and removed all of your negative character traits, because any klipa within you, any negative, any sitra achra, will interfere with the process. Um, and then you take a chapter of Mishnah that you know by heart, and you say it out loud. You, are, you say the words audibly, and you have to clearly articulate each word but say it as fast as possible without messing up the pronunciation. And you say the chapter over and over again. And because the, 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 the soul of the righteous are in their words, the soul of that tzaddik will enter your mouth um, and you will be able to communicate with that soul you will, um, and your mouth will respond. So you, you ask questions in your mind. And your mouth will speak with the soul of the tzaddik, and because souls are conduits to God. Yeah. Weird stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 was, I was like, I was okay until it said, like, you know, you have to do complete It was like, not for me.
1: <laughs>
0: anyway, you can see why, like, people thought maybe we shouldn't publish this yes. stuff. It's not for everybody. But anyway, but the beginning parts of the book are much more like mundane. And it's where he introduces the idea of two souls. So, What's very important to understand is like this. I'm going to talk about what he says there. And again, it says this also in the Itz Chaim. There's a person. Let's just start there. You're a person, right? I'm a person. You're a person of all people, right? Okay. Is the main part of the person the flesh or something else? Just, And I'm using the word flesh intentionally. Would you want to say the main thing about me is my flesh? No. no, right? That's kind of obvious. So whatever the other thing is, that's the soul. Good? The thing that's not the flesh, that's the soul. Simple enough? That's basically what he says, that a person is not the flesh. And then he brings the idea that, that, we're, that it says that the people were clothed in flesh. as a verse. So if you're clothed in flesh, then the person isn't the flesh. Right? The flesh is some kind of a container, some kind of, right, right? Basic body-soul dynamic. So far, so good? Okay. Um, let's, again, we're not going to, I want to get the Dr. Souls very, very simply understood kind of from the, the source doctor was working from, and then we'll, we can go forward. If you eat a lot of junk food, is that good for you? Yeah. Why not? I'm serious, why not? Tastes good. Why not?
1: It doesn't give your body the nutrients
0: it helps. I don't care, I'm not my body.
1: But if
0: your body, body houses the soul, right? And it's a little bit deeper. It's not just the body houses the soul, it's that the body is the medium through which the soul functions. So, It's like, I don't care if my phone doesn't work. I don't need my phone. I just want to talk to my wife. Well, I'm sorry. You can't do that because she's over there. The medium is important, right? It may not be the main thing, but it is important, right? So if you do things that harm... So essentially, if you eat a lot of junk food, you you are causing maybe not direct harm, but a kind of indirect harm to the soul because your soul can't function properly because the medium through which it functions is the body. That's kind of intuitive, right? For instance, you eat a lot of junk food. Um, your cognitive capacity is going to be diminished, right? Your ability to emotionally regulate will be diminished, right? You're having energy to meet all the demands of a full life are going to be diminished. Lifespan will probably be diminished, right? Okay, makes sense? Good? So we can conclude that it is not good for you. To eat junk food? Yeah. Okay, good. Are there things that try to tell you that it is good for you to eat junk food? What? Yeah. Yeah. We'll start with the obvious one, which is the junk food company has have, um, advertising, they probably outsource it to ad agencies that are trying to implant in us a sense that eating junk food is good for us. Right? Okay. Now in Israel, they have these red stickers, red circles on things that are supposed to tell us That it's bad for us. Good? Okay. So, I'm a person. The main part of me is my soul. And so when we think about things being good for me or bad for me, we really have to think in terms of the soul. And even if we're talking about the body, it's really how the body affects the soul's ability to manifest. This is like very basic stuff. You don't even need to be a religious person to get what I'm saying, right? Okay. Anything that is trying to influence me, that the stuff that's bad for me is the stuff I should do, we're going to call that the evil inclination. And the stuff that's trying to convince me to do the stuff that's good for me, that's the
1: good,
0: good inclination. So far so good? No. Am I the evil inclination? No. Am I the good inclination? No. No. Right? Am I the body? No. no, I'm the soul housed, being manifest through the body, and then there are these forces that are trying to influence me. Now, I started with the companies and their advertisements because those are external, but the goal of those companies and advertisements is not that they stay external, but they become internalized, right? Um, when I was younger, I always had the question, how come advertisement doesn't just tell you the product and its features and its costs? So you realize like it's worth it for you to have it. Um, and w- what's the answer? Why, don't, why doesn't advertisement work that way?
1: People
0: do make decisions based on rationality? Okay. How do people make decisions? Okay. I want to add one other important point. How much of our decision-making is even fully conscious and self-aware? Not a
1: lot.
0: So if you can get associations put into the unconscious of a person, you can influence their decision-making much better than an appeal to something which is conscious, right? So what they really want you to do is associate positive self-image with their shampoo. Right? Which is, you know, that's basically how all shampoo is sold. Right? Somehow you will have, somehow if you buy our shampoo, you will feel good about yourself in a deep existential way, which makes no sense. But you use, you know, you use language, which is like, you know, use rhetoric and use imagery and you use music, right? To create those associations, right? And that's basically how all this stuff works? Yes. Okay. And it becomes internalized. And then the advertiser's voices in your head, maybe it doesn't sound like the advertiser. Maybe it becomes, I mean, there's the more explicit way where you make a jingle or something that sticks in a person's head. But then there's the more subtle way where it, it doesn't even sound like the advertising anymore. But you have this kind of deep unconscious association between a particular product and things. Kind of the way how nostalgia is created. Okay, so if something is trying to influence me to do things that are bad for me. It may start off external, but ultimately its effectiveness is when it becomes internalized. right? Which is why the evil inclination feels like it's coming from, on some level, inside ourselves. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel like us. And by the way, the good inclination is the same thing. So in the Kabbalistic terminology, um, which is actually, you find some expressions in in the Midrash, the good and evil inclination are actually angels. Do you remember I said God runs the world through angels? So if God decides that something should convince you to do something bad for you, he sends an angel to do that. And if God says something should convince you, try to convince you to do something good for you, he sends an angel to do that, right? Is the angel
1: on the
0: shoulders? Except they don't stay in the shoulders. (laughs) They become deeply internalized. Okay? And that's like pretty classic Judaism, by the way, right? The good and evil inclination aren't the person. They're like, kind of like the advisors swaying the king, right? Again, this is imagery to help us understand a more internalized process, okay? So there's me, me is body and soul, but the me of me is, is not the flesh. So whatever's the not flesh is the real me. And that's the thing that I use to measure what's really good or not good. And then I have these things that are trying to influence me for my benefit or really not for my benefit. And, you know, obviously the evil inclination doesn't come and say, harm yourself. Right, why would you say "harm yourself That's silly, right so what does it, what does it say? It will feel good, right or or yeah, or it will make you feel a certain way, right, or it's not that bad or whatever it is, right good now. This, I'm, this is the following, this analogy does not use in, in the Shari Kedusha, but it's based on what it says in Shari Kedusha. It doesn't give an analogy for the idea. Um, I'm going to use breathing. Is it better to breathe gas that contains large amounts of oxygen or large amounts of carbon dioxide? Oxygen. Are you sure? Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: You're assuming I'm talking about animal life. Maybe I'm talking about plant life, in which case,
1: Carbobino.
0: that's right. In other words, what is beneficial depends on what you are. It's not a straightforward thing that something that is good for you is good for someone else, right? Yeah? So now I could actually change this and say, well, what if, what if, using the breathing example, if you're an animal, and we don't include people in this, your evil inclination would try to get you to breathe in carbon dioxide, and your good inclination would try to get you to breathe in oxygen, right? But if you're a tree or other plant life, your good inclination will get you to breathe in carbon dioxide and your evil inclination will get you to breathe in oxygen, right? Okay, so far so, that makes sense? So you kind of flip the rules? Now here's an interesting question. What if you, what if half of you is a tree and half of you is an animal? But you only can breathe one thing. So now you have an interesting problem because what's good for you is also what's good for one of you is bad for the other of you. That's the idea of two souls. That there's not, there's not just the flesh and the other thing called the soul. There's actually two other things called the soul. And guess what? What's good for one is not good for the other. So the evil inclination is trying to get you to do things that are good for one soul at the expense of the other soul. And the good inclination is trying to get you to do things that are good for one soul at the expense of the other soul. Now do you see how that like radically changes everything now? Like there's like there's a kind of like existential problem here. Like I have to prioritize something of me over me. Prior to this idea, all I have to do is figure out which one is lying to me. The evil inclination's a liar, right? It's selling me cigarettes, it's selling me junk food, right? And the good inclination is the one that's honest, but it's just not, you know, it doesn't have the budget. So I just have to I have to I have to like you know realize that you know where where who to trust and who not to trust, right? And that's a very basic thing that we all learn, hopefully growing up. We learn to identify the voice of the good and evil inclination. Okay. Um you know that voice that tells you like that this is wrong? That when you feel like it's not, I don't want it, I don't like it, it's wrong. And it becomes a little bit clear, not just it's wrong, the the because it's wrong. It's not right for me, right? That's the voice of the... Yeah. Now, that voice is not always so clear, right? Sometimes it's very subtle. Okay, but hopefully, as we mature and we get educated, we learn to identify that voice, we learn to listen to that voice, it gets stronger. Okay, that's classic Judaism. we we'll have those probably most other religious traditions have a similar notion, because it's a basic feature of humanity. And then, you know, to start to realize the that there is this kind of, you know... I'll use the, 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 the example that's used in the Chumash, a kind of snake-like voice trying to convince you that the things that are really aren't good are perfectly fine. Right? Okay. But at the end of the day, there is like, it's, it's either good for me or not good for me, right? But if you say there's two souls, what does that mean? It means if it's good for one part of me... So are
1: there two inclinations in each?
0: No, you have two inclinations. Right? But now we're going to only label one the good because there's only one of these souls is the soul we should care about. We should prioritize one. And we, the Tanya labels us the godly soul and the animal soul. That's the labeling in the Tanya. Okay, so what's good for the godly soul comes at the expense of the and what's good for the animal soul on these terms of the animal soul not in some like deep you know god's plan terms is actually bad for the godly soul okay now the zohar uses very different terminology which is confusing but I'll, and it's actually misleading but the terminology in the zohar is the strength of the soul is the weakness of the body and the weakness of the body is the strength of the soul took what but when, this, when the Zohar is referring to soul and body, it's actually referring to the godly soul and animal So By the way, Hasidists will often use the term body and really mean animal soul as well. So you have to be sensitive to that. But Okay, so that, you have this whole different way of thinking about it. It's like there is a part of me that is, that is actually in conflict with another part. Not about what I do, but about who is the, who is the real me. Right? We're all clear that I'm not the flesh, right? But if I take this stuff that's not the flesh, even then it's not clear which of of that should be the me. And the thing is, you're gonna pay a price. Because if you decide that the animal soul is you, and then try to do the things that you think are good for you, who's gonna suffer? The godly soul. And if you decide that you are the godly soul, and do the stuff that is good for the godly soul, who's gonna suffer? We just made things very complicated, very messy. And the Altyazim says, if you can understand that issue, understand now really what's the dichotomy, what makes the godly so godly, the animal so animal, Right? why really there's this irreconcilable conflict between them, Right? how they function, how Torah, mitzvahs, mundane behaviors fit into this, you will start to understand what we mean by tzaddik, a rasha, a bain, any of these types of things. And you'll start to realize what degree things are in your control, what degree things are not in your control. And what you start to realize is that for a person who encounters this, and this I'm going to end on, for a person who encounters this, the evil inclination, the good inclination, start talking about something much deeper. If you don't have any conscious awareness of this, the good inclination is telling you to do the stuff that is ultimately good for your godly soul. The evil inclination is telling you to do the stuff that is bad for your godly soul but is good for your animal soul on its terms, right? Once you become aware of this, they adopt a whole new campaign, which is the godly soul, the the good inclination is trying to not just convince you to do the things that are good for the godly soul, but to identify yourself primarily with the godly soul. So becomes and now they start arguing not merely over not trying to persuade you over how you should behave. Because now that you're taking conscious control over how you which part of yourself is you're going to make the primary you. You now get these different voices of which one, how you should choose to identify yourself, how you should choose to see yourself, how your self conception should be. So the evil inclination of a, of a. Person who really learns Hasidis, in addition to telling them to sin and indulge and all that other stuff, also tells them, "Think of yourself as a person with a godly soul." Mm-hmm. And what is their in- good inclination says, in addition to do mitzvahs and go above Magdalene of the law and grow in spiritual awareness, it says, "See yourself as a godly soul contending with an animal soul." And so now like, that's going to be whole different. That's what Zawal is doing. There was this conflict which was implicit and unconscious, and he's making it explicit, but that also now changes the dynamic of the struggle. But he's saying, when you do that, you will be able to succeed in it more effectively than if all that is left implicit. Okay, so that's the doctrine of two souls. And then, next week, we will start going over you know, the ideas that how the Alter arranges the ideas. Chapter after chapter, the first 17, as one section, and then we'll move on from there. Tomorrow's question and answers. Please um, have questions. Um, Prepare them. At least somebody should prepare. I'm not going to prepare the answers because I don't know the questions.
1: Thank 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 you.